MSW Media. So, Asha, why is Donald Trump so much harder to prosecute than Sam Bankman-Fried? Hmm, it's complicated. I'm Asha Ringaba. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Renato, we learned uh, recently that Sam Bankman-Fried, the previous owner of FTX, uh, was arrested in the Bahamas. And we talked about him. We talked about FTX and cryptocurrency and all the stuff that makes my eyes glaze over in our first episode. But I have to say, I mean, you know, when we were talking about that, it was so fresh. I mean, he I think he had just fled to the Bahamas. Everything had just collapsed. We're now here just, what, two or three weeks later, and he's being indicted. I mean, that's very, very fast. And here we've been, you know, for years telling people it takes so long to investigate and, you know, it takes time. And so what what is going on and what what do we make of it? I mean, I have, you know... Obviously, I have thoughts about Trump, but I'm I'm curious if if you can fill in the blanks on the uh, on the SEC side. Yeah, I have to say, Asha, I was really surprised myself at the speed of this. In fact, there was a reporter from CNBC who kept asking me, like, why haven't they arrested him yet? And I spent all this time explaining to her that it just takes many months, if not years, to investigate these kind of cases. And, you know, that was totally wrong. I mean, I'd spent a lot of time and then she literally called me back. Uh, a week later, and I looked very foolish, right? Because uh, he got arrested. He, he got arrested about five or six weeks after the collapse of FTX, which is, in in investigation terms, that's lightning speed. And it was interesting to see the press conference yesterday because there was this massive team that was assembled. A lot of people I've actually worked with, and the funny thing is, on the investigations I worked uh, with those people. Uh, it would take us, it took us years. And, and I worked with the, one of the head SEC people that, that is working on this case. And, and me and her had an investigation that took us years and we ended up not bringing charges at the end. <laughs> I worked with some of the CFTC folks. Uh, we worked on investigations that took well over a year. And here you have a case that's much bigger than anything I've ever looked at in terms of sheer dollar amount. And a pretty complex case that you know involves uh, all these international corporations. They brought it in several weeks. The other thing that's super interesting is when you look at the indictment, it's like bare bones. You know, usually a fraud indictment's got all of these details, smoking gun, you know, smoking gun emails and text messages and all that stuff. None of that's in there. There's no financial analyses. Just very broad allegations about fraud, charging it with everything under the sun. So what does that mean? I mean, it sure means that they were in a hurry to indict this guy. Uh, also, uh, you know, means that they kind of rushed something out, but yet are super confident that they're going to get a conviction here. You know, you could it could be because there's a cooperator, um, but I think it's more likely 
the fact that this fraud is so brazen and so in many ways simple. I mean, it's a complex area of, you know, it's crypto is complicated and all of that. But what he was doing was so simple and so brazen. And he was so stupid to kind of confess all over the place that they ended up just deciding, you know what, we got him. Like, let's not waste any more time. Let's just grab him which is really interesting. That was my impression. I mean, you said simple. I mean, it seems to me it's, it was just sloppy, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I read an, a, an article uh, that interviewed, I guess, I think it was a forensic accountant who went through the finances for Enron and who said, look, with Enron, <clears throat> you had, you know, this entire scheme of, of accounting, you know, trying to do these accounting practices and pull things over on the board, you know, all... Uh, and the and he said this is just your classic basically like a ponzi scheme i mean they just took investors money and they spent it on other stuff when they said that they were not going to um and you know we talked in in our first episode about sort of the circular way in which the two companies were kind of propping the other up and i'm just wondering if you know just the bright, like just the sloppiness of it like sort of almost the incompetence of it makes it easier um perhaps because you don't have to like it it speaks for itself you know the, the race ipsa loquitur as we say in the law like you know it's, it uh you didn't need to maybe get into all these communications behind the scene because they were just doing it quite openly yeah i think the the biggest issue is that it involved the entire company in other words most fraud cases against big corporate entities involve very narrow charges. You know, it's like, oh, well, you have this big international publicly traded company and there's this small project where there was fraud or there's a specific customer that they defrauded or a specific issue with a particular subsidiary. It's rarely the case that like the entire company is just one big massive fraud. <laughs> and that's really what happened here. And I think that makes things very tough for SBF because this guy you know, what, what are you going to say? I, you know, from the very beginning, he was taking customers' money, telling them, oh, your money's safe with us. And then he was just sending it, you know, to this other company. He was using it for his own purposes. It was really sloppy and so pervasive that it's hard for him to explain it away. So, yeah, I do think that's what was happening here. In many ways, it was less complicated than a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme, you got all these layers of people. Uh, you're, you're paying them some of the money back. There wasn't even that that's here. True. It was just basically just... It's just a straight up easy garden variety fraud. Uh, and it's amazing that he got this far and fooled so many people. Um, but I think just to come back at you, I know what a lot of our listeners are thinking. Uh, so what they're going to say is, well, wait, isn't Trump that stupid, too? I mean, he, he tweets out all of these incriminating things and he's so sloppy and it's so obvious what he's doing. Why isn't he in prison already? And I do think. What part of that, from my perspective, comes from the fact that that these that the the crimes that he's allegedly committed are much more complicated? Yeah, I mean, I think the most straightforward, as we've discussed, is the Mar-a-Lago case. I mean, that's a you know, it has that sloppiness. It has the look. It, there's no way to really explain this. Like you had hundreds of classified documents on on your property, um, and I think here this is where the the crazy lawsuit in Judge Aileen Cannon's courtroom matters because that took a lot of evidence out of the FBI and DOJ's hands and because it dealt with classified information and even the stuff that wasn't classified, they would need to do a classification review of all of that 
which takes time. So I think that there, both that crazy rabbit hole that we went down, plus the fact that you're dealing with classified documents, um, adds some, you know, both added delay and then adds complexity um, in terms of the speed of what otherwise is quite straightforward. Yeah, I, I think that that, I mean, that's the first, that case is the first time uh, in all of uh, the Trump legal problems where I felt, I feel pretty confident or feel very, I think it's certainly more likely than not that there will be charges. And I'm really trying to struggle to figure out why there wouldn't be. And I mean, I think it ha would have to do with something very unique to him or the presidency. So that's really something. A, a lot of the other stuff uh, is super complicated, right? Putting aside Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, January 6th, we've talked a lot about that as well. I mean, that is very complicated in terms of what you'd even charge, right? I mean, it's trying to convince Mike Pence not to certify particular electors. Is that a crime? Like, you know, there's all the First Amendment issues around his speech at the, at the Rotunda and or the Ellipse, excuse me, and so on. Well, and there's just so many different threads. Uh, you know, the <laughs> I like to I like to refer back to my diagram, which I have on Twitter. But just there's a lot of different threads, and actually, it looks like the special counsel might be starting to dig into some of those threads. Uh, he just issued a subpoena to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who was the person that Trump called asking for the votes, and. That surprised me. I'm curious what you think, because that threat, it seemed to me, had been was being handled by the Fulton County D.A. And I didn't I was wondering why DOJ wasn't looking into that. But at some point I was just like, OK, I guess they just feel like this is being handled by the, the D.A. But it looks like he's going down that road. Or what? What? I mean, I think he's trying to wrap it all together into a bigger picture. I think there's no question that he is. I mean, I think my read on that is that whoever DOJ was looking at all of this January 6th stuff made a determination on the front end that certain avenues were just weren't worth, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, or they just felt that they weren't going to result in charges most likely in any event. I mean, I know, uh, I, you know, I know that I'm going to be criticized for this. I got a lot of negative comments when I said this the other day on Twitter but I really think that that conversation with Ravisberger is more of a word salad than people uh, would care to admit. I mean, I know he asked for to find 10 or 11,000 votes at one point, but he said a lot of other stuff at other points and made it sound like he at other times, like he believed that the election was stolen and that there was fraud there and so on. It's just it's more it's not clean. It's more confusing than the typical, quote, smoking gun that a prosecutor would be looking for. So. You know, I, I could just see a pro, uh, somebody in the Garland Justice Department being like, eh, you know, th th that's all there is. There's not much there. You know, we're not going to pursue that 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 aggressively. And Jack Smith is. And so I think you're starting to see the impact. I mean, there's a lot of people, Asha, that were poo-pooing the idea of a special counsel. I mean, you and I, I think we're in the minority on that. And mm -hmm. I, I think this is an example of the... Uh, upside uh, for people who, who are interested in a prosecution of Trump in terms of having a special counsel. I think he's leaving no stone unturned, but I think he's at a very early stage. I don't expect him to give this the SBF treatment where you just indict, indict now and read the documents later. Uh, so sort of is, is Bonnie Willis uh, sharing like her investigative results with 
with DOJ and now with the special counsel, I mean, could that account for the inter, you know, to the, to the point mm. where you said they look at it, they say there's not much there, there, or it's just not going to be worth, you know, going down the road. Then they get more from her. I mean, what do you think? Is, is there sharing going on behind the scenes? Well, there's certainly sharing going behind on behind the scenes. I mean, law enforcement's always talking to one another. Uh, that's super common. Uh, that's an interesting thought. I frankly hadn't considered that Asha. So I learned something on this podcast already. Um, that was that was a smart idea. Yeah, that's very possible. They may have learned something in all of this testimony. So that's certainly one possibility. It's also possible that uh, they're learning things in, for example, the fake electors. Uh, investigation or in some other January 6th investigation that's making them think like, oh, this whole thing with Raffensperger fits into a broader picture or a broader scheme mm -hmm. that we otherwise are going to charge. So uh, there's a lot of reasons why he might be looking at that. I mean, I think it's still early stage, right? I mean, he's sending out these subpoenas, um, you know, it, you know, it, it, that's the sort of thing you do at the beginning of an investigation, but it's it's certainly worth noting, but but the point I think is, nonetheless, it's not like I don't think it's very clear to either of us exactly what you would charge and how it would be charged. I think it's very fact specific, and I think it's also fair to say that none of the activity here has ever been done before, much less charged before. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, I think that's right. Well, we've never had someone try to stage a self coup. I, uh, the other avenue where this could be being more illuminated on the special counsel radar, special counsel's radar is through the Jeffrey Clark angle, mm -hmm. because Jeffrey Clark sent or, or wanted to send a false, a letter alleging false claims of voter fraud in Georgia. And I think like that was a part of creating a legal veneer for both the secretary of state and these legislators to be able to, you know, do whatever, do their part, uh, whether it's look for the 11,870 votes or create a new slate of electors. Like, I think all of these are intertwined and they have been looking at the Jeffrey Clark piece for mm -hmm. a while. And so if that in some way was connected to, um, you know, the phone call or, you know, was motivating that phone call to kind of get that scheme in motion. Um, I wonder if that that's another potential link. Yeah. It's another good idea uh, that I had considered. I think it's possible that they view what's going on in Georgia as evidence of Trump's intent, for example, as to something else that they might consider charging. So I do think that all fits together. It's just from my perspective, not only is a lot of that at an early stage, but it's just unclear what they would charge. Yeah. And I just want everyone to understand the difference there. You know, the difference, like with the SBF thing, I told, I was able to tell you on day one, exactly what they were going to charge. This is like fraud. It's, you know, very easy to see what the fraud is, which and fraud are like bread and butter cases that like every prosecutor worth their salt is broad. I mean, if you're a federal prosecutor and federal prosecutory office, like you learn to do that in your early weeks in the job. You, you get small fraud cases. It might just be someone stole a couple of hundred thousand dollars from Social Security uh, or something like that or, you know, whatever, you know, defrauded their employer out of a half a million dollars. But nonetheless, um, you, you get those cases. You know how to do them. They're bread and butter 
DOJ kind of case. And so it's just taking the same playbook and throwing it at, you know, yet another uh, fraudster. So the one other piece, which is at the top of my diagram, all these members of Congress. And we just learned <laughs> that we uh, that there were all these text messages that had previously not been revealed. Mark Meadows was in touch with 34 of them. Some of them are calling for martial law. Some of them are sending him conspiracy theories and very problematic interpretations of the Constitution. Um, you know, one thing that I have always noticed about the January 6th committee's hearings and kind of the, the things that it was reviewing is that they weren't really looking into the role of members of Congress. I don't mm -hmm. think that's going to end up in their report, which we'll talk about after the break. Um, and I don't see any sign that DOJ, I mean, maybe they are, I, I never say never, I have no idea, but you have all of these people um, really, you know, pretty much on board with a coup, being willing to use violent means if necessary, the military, et cetera. And uh, it doesn't, to me, look like, let me talking about lack of accountability. It doesn't seem to me that we're on a path to really hold them accountable. Yeah, I, I don't see a path. I mean, I think part of the, there's a speech and debate clause issue with members of Congress. And a lot of what they were doing is spitballing stuff out there. I mean, they couldn't even spell mar uh, martial law correctly, right? <laughs> I, I mean, this was just a lot of, you know, chit chat amongst members of Congress that was very just deeply disturbing. I don't see it being charged. I could be wrong. I know I'm the sad panda of this uh, podcast. Well, I'm going to push back. It wasn't just chit-chat. They were trying to operationalize a plan to defraud the United States and to obstruct Congress. And I get what you're saying, that it overlaps with the speech and debate clause and, and et cetera. But I'm just saying it wasn't just chit-chat. Like, they were on board. Many of them participated in the objections. Like, they were ready to put it in action. Well, the objections themselves are right. totally protected Legal. by the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that speech and debate clause, that frankly is them fulfilling their role. So, you know, I think in, in regarding chit chat that went beyond that, you know, martial law and all of that, you know, that would be like somebody, let's just say SPF to bring it back to our original analogy. Let's say that Bankman Free gets together with a bunch of his friends. They all are wearing their hoodies and they're joking about different ways to defraud people. And none of those things come into fruition. He ends up picking a totally different way of engaging in fraud. But they all had a lot of great ideas. Like, those ideas are interesting. They might be evidence of intent. But I don't think any of, any of his friends have liability just for spitballing different ideas out there. So that I, – I, and I know people are going to get mad. I'll get a bunch of angry tweets. But that that's sort of my gut on that one. Um now, I, I understand people think members of Congress aren't held accountable. I do think they are. And by the way, I just one thing I'll also say is one thing that got debunked with this SBF thing, I think, is people, I think, had the idea that the rich and powerful are never held accountable. Like, wasn't there a lot of it wasn't Elon Musk convinced that uh, SBF would get off uh, and a lot of other uh, a lot of other people were saying the same thing. So obviously, that's not not the case. Yeah. And just. On the members of Congress, I mean, this is the very long shot <clears throat> because we don't really know how this plays out or how you is is the Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. If if anyone is like officially implicated as an insurrectionist or there's you know evidence there, 
there is a clause of the Constitution that says that providing aid and comfort or trying to overthrow the government makes you, you know, uh, ineligible to hold public office. The problem is, is that post-Civil War uh, clause, it, we, we haven't had a chance to use it, so we don't really know how you, you operationalize it. It's not, it's not self-executing. The fact that it's there doesn't just mean that um, if the committee said these people are insurrectionists that they get kicked out. There seems to be, I think, a need for some additional procedure, and of course that would end up in a lot of litigation. But just saying that there is that one thing separate and apart from the criminal code that could apply to that conduct. I hear you. I mean, I think that's that's out there. I think it would make for a really good law review article for a mm -hmm. law professor. I just don't see it actually happening. I could be wrong, but I just don't, I don't think courts are going to go there. I think it could happen for some people. I do think that there are a few whose participation, if it rises to like, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who even just like two days ago was like, well, we would have been armed and, you know, it would have been successful. So yeah, I hear you. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have to say, I, I am I'll be to be the sad panda again. I don't think anything's going to happen with the members of Congress. I could be wrong unless there's some evidence we don't know. Right. It's not like we have all of their texts. We only have Mark Meadows uh, for whatever reason. But um, I will just say that I think, uh, you know, I think that what is really uh, under discussed and underreported and under uh, speculated about are the ways in which, you know, people and companies engage in what I'm going to call gray area activities rather than crimes. In other words, you know, there's so much focus all the time on imprisoning people when they do things that are wrong. And I hear all the time, when so-and-so go to prison, when, you know, when is this person, that person going to prison? And the reality, the reason it is so hard to prosecute many members of Congress and many rich powerful type people is that what they do is they learn uh, how to engage in activity that is a shade of gray, but not oh, quite over the line. And in many ways, that's what expensive lawyers do is they help their clients stay in the very light shades of gray, as opposed to the dark shades of gray that could potentially lead them into jeopardy because what's a crime or not a crime is often not entirely black and white. And so I think uh, I think someday we'll have to discuss that complicated aspect of this on this podcast. Although intuitively, it seems black and white. Legally, the events of January 6th are complicated. Complicated, indeed. So, Asha, what do you think of these upcoming January 6th committee referrals? Are you excited about them, looking forward to them? Well, I know that there's a big deal being made of them, but I'm not really sure. I think people don't really understand that they're mostly symbolic. Um, look, you know, the Department of Justice does not, A, need referrals in order to investigate crimes. B, with regard to the events of January 6th, if they're not already investigating it and, you know, it requires a referral from the January 6th committee, like, I'm sorry, that we're in pretty bad shape. So 
Really, I think the value of, and I think actually the referrals are a double-edged sword, to be honest with you. I think that the value of criminal referrals from the January 6th committee is sort of, there's like an official pronouncement of, we believe that criminal wrongdoing has taken place, which um, is meaningful, right? It's sort of like the impeachment process where you kind of document and you say it and that gives you something tangible, even if nothing comes of it in the criminal process. I think that's important as a matter of historical record and sort of a symbolic accusation, if you will. Um, I think the flip side is that because the January 6th committee has been politicized and because it's not subject to being tested by the judicial process, um, it could you know, obviously Trump and his allies are going to view it as political, but then I, I'm worried that it will be spun that anything that then comes out of DOJ that, you know, they're, it, they're doing it because the committee told them to. And it, when in reality, it would have nothing to do with the committee. Yeah. So you're telling me that a, that a bunch of politicians telling prosecutors what to charge is not, uh, is not important. Yeah, I, I have a similar reaction to you. I, I think the Justice Department is a much better situated to decide what to charge. I don't really think there's anything to be gained from a bunch of politicians telling them one way or another their opinions about it. But it generates tons of attention, right? I'm sure you, like me, have been asked. Uh, I was like asked. I'm, gonna be oh, on, I'm on alert for next week, man. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on vacation, but I was already getting all these things like, well, are you going to be available? And can you, you know, I, my, my, can you live like, blog the results? The, yeah. My right? editor's <laughs> like, can you write a column on the, are you ready? We got to be ready to go on a column on this. I'm like, seriously, like people, people actually care about that stuff. But the answer is, yeah. I mean, the media is really interested in it. It reminds me of they, they did that like final hearing for the January 6th committee. And like, it was just a recap, but then they're like, yeah, let's subpoena Trump, which, was never going to go anywhere. Right. Uh, it was sort of like that. Like, okay, that was interesting, but I, I, I kind of just a, a show more than anything. So people need to understand that the House committee investigation, you know, just serves a different purpose and has different standards than DOJ. And so the referrals that they have are going to be based on voluminous evidence, which I'm so glad that they gathered, right? Like as a matter of historical record, it's so important that they got all of this, that they had those video depositions that they are going to create, you know, they have all these transcripts, they're going to create this report. But Renato, I mean, you can tell me, not all of that would ever would be admissible in a court. And so the determinations, the legal determinations are going to be very different or be are going to be based on different calculations. And that's another reason why I think, you know, the referrals are, you know, they're, they make for good TV. And, and, and I, I'm glad that the committee is getting attention, but, you know, aren't practically speaking that important. Yeah. I, look, you make some great points. I'll just say that I, I think the committee's work is extraordinarily valuable but the way I view them is as a replacement for the 9-11 Commission. You know, this is yeah. in many ways to me our generation's version of, you know, this is the January 6th Commission. This is the, um, the uh, you know, the body that is compiling all the facts that is 
you know, conducting all the witness interviews, getting all the documents and setting it forth. I mean, I think their report is going to be important, not as some roadmap for prosecution, but rather as, you know, their version of the 9-11 commission's report, which, by the way, when I was much younger, I bought and read. Like when it came out, I bought a copy of it from the Barnes & Noble uh, bookstore. We got books back in the day because I'm like, I want to read this whole thing and understand what really happened. And, and I, so I think it's super important from a historical perspective. I think it's also had an impact on the public. I do think that they've raised awareness and brought a lot of attention to a not not only an, a violent ta- attack, but I think a really important historical event. I mean, can you imagine if nothing, if they, if we hadn't had this and it had just been silence, and people would have been able to spin January sixth as a tourist visit or whatever, you know, 100%. they've been able to create a counter narrative. And to their credit, Renato, they did. I, I think, and I know I get angry uh, tw- tweets and stuff. I think they jump-started the DOJ in a lot of ways to look at the upper echelons of what happened and not just the foot soldiers. It definitely seems to me that that got underway a lot later and mostly because of explosive testimony that was coming out in these public hearings. Yeah, I mean, I will say I was very surprised by some of the reporting that they didn't know what Cassidy Hutchinson said. <laughs> Uh, before I'm like, seriously, like you guys don't know what she was going to say beforehand. That's very problematic that the justice department found out the same way I did about what she was going to say about that. So yeah, I I tend to agree with you on that. And and I think, so I think they've done valuable work, but what bothers me about it is that it's all seen through the lens of, well, how can this lead to a potential prosecution? I mean, you and I were both, you know, talking in the media and they would ask us questions, I think all the time, like, well, from today's testimony, what do you think has moved the ball down the road for a criminal prosecution? That's really what they're focused on. And, and I understand that, and I get that that is uh, something folks are interested in. But I just don't think, as you suggested, that's the right way of looking at this. And I just think we would be better off if we viewed this as something that has a different goal. Uh, because, by the way, criminal prosecutions are not about educating the public or creating mm-hmm. a historical record. In fact, most of the evidence that gathered never sees the light of day. And often none of it does. If you don't bring a prosecution, it, all that evidence is just you know buried forever. And so um, you know, this is just a entirely different sort of enterprise. So before we go, Asha, I, I guess one thing I do want to say, and I got some sad news uh, to report, um, is that uh, last night or this morning, um, my uh, pet bird, Dolly, uh, passed away, which was uh, very sad for my entire family. Uh, my my wife has been uh, in tears for most of the day. Uh, you know, Dolly's just a very beloved pet, and... Uh, you know, it's it's hard. She had a, a long battle with cancer. And she she lived much longer than the vet thought she would, uh, given the cancer. And I think we had gotten ourselves to a point where we thought she was indestructible. Uh, but it turns out she wasn't. But obviously, she lives on uh, for all of us. Oh, I'm so sorry, Renato. It's so hard to lose a pet. And <clears throat> I went through that in, in September. And it's hard because you kind of see them everywhere in a way, um, right after, you know, um, but I, 
I hope, I wish all of you healing. Um, and I'm glad that Dolly got to make some appearances on her podcast and that we have some footage of her. Yeah, she actually made it onto Canadian TV, which is something. Really? So I'll have to, yeah, I'm going to have to, I have to announce this. Uh, and so I'll have to tag tag the Canadian TV hosts uh, so they know. But um, in I'm all sorry. seriousness, yeah, no, she she lived a very rich life, was very loved here. And Henry's been looking for her, so even he. Oh, no. Yeah, even he misses. He's been like all like very curious as to where that, where her cage went. In fact, that would used to be oh. a source of seeds for him and also you know he would you know be looking at her uh, much of the day and they they always interacted back and forth so Mm. um yeah so it is what it is um but we do have the holidays coming up Uh, my you know we'll be away for a a portion of the holidays but uh you know definitely one of the more exciting times of year um i know for me one of our traditions every year my mom um, when she grew up, she was a, grew up in Little Italy in Chicago. She would make Christmas cookies for everybody uh, mm-hmm. in the extended family and in the neighborhood. And as she um, as she uh, got older, we didn't have as many family around. I ended up I ended up sharing those with all sorts of people. So my mom has Christmas cookies that are very famous at the U.S. Attorney's Office. She won the cookie contest several years yeah. in a row. Uh, and so many judges on the record uh, would talk about uh, <laughs> cookies. I would be prosecuting someone, and the judge, uh, one judge, say that my mom's uh, Christmas cookies were. He wanted to, you know, kind of um, front any potential bias uh, that came. So my my mom is still making those uh, Christmas cookies, and you know, that's one of our traditions is you know getting together and making Christmas cookies and that sort of thing. Do you do you put up a Christmas tree in your house? You, I think you, before you said that your wife is Jewish, but she loves Christmas. Yes. In fact, last year, my wife put up several Christmas trees in our house. We have like she has a special white tree that she's got. Uh, she's got like she in the front room and she's got one in the downstairs and then she has one upstairs. So, like I said, super into Christmas. We have menorahs up as well. I mean, celebrate Hanukkah and all that. But uh we're very big on Christmas trees in my house. That's really funny. I mean, so, you know, I'm Hindu, but have always celebrated Christmas. When my parents came here in the 70s, one of the, th- you know, they they had never celebrated Christmas, but they saw, they looked around, was like, this is what people do. So um we put up a tree and, you know, we believed in Santa and, and we would get the gifts. And so for me, it is uh, a tradition that has been a part of my life, um, even though it's not necessarily a part of my religious tradition. And I really enjoy it. Um, so I have my tree up. I am incredibly stressed because I have not done my Christmas shopping. So the part, you know, when you adopt Christmas, you got to adopt all of it, which means you just like buy presents. And like I'm and I'm like a I am totally an online shopper. Um, but I the other day I looked at the calendar and I was like, oh, shit, like I am super behind. Yeah, you know, not too many delivery days until Christmas. No. No. And so I don't know. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't, I, my boyfriend may or may not listen to this podcast. I told you, I don't think my kids listen to this podcast, but I, so I can't like really say <laughs> too anything cool more. for mom's podcast. Yeah, yeah. They did love on topic. 
I mean, Horace, like he was so excited. He and I was so cool when I was like a guest on your um on your podcast. And actually I was listening to one of our um recordings because I wanted to hear how it sound uh sounded and he was in the car and he's like, Is that Renato Mariotti? And I said, Yes. <laughs> I said, I have a podcast with him now. And he was like, Really? And um <laughs> he seemed surprised. So I think he doesn't think I'm wow. as cool as you. Um, wow, he's the only one. Um, <laughs> he's the only one. I, I will note. I mean, anyone who watches these on YouTube, I'm always much less put together than Asha. Asha's always like coming off a TV appearance, looks like uh, fantastic, <laughs> and I'm here in like my pajamas. Uh, and today she's drinking wine. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't even have my. I don't even have my water bottle here. Um, I will ask you, I have to ask Asha before we go. Okay. uh, Christmas, do you drink eggnog or are you like wine all the way? I am wine all the way. Oh, wow. I don't do eggnog. Wow. Okay. Wow. On that note, uh, (laughs) I'm going to enjoy my, my, uh, my winter wine in, uh, in uh, Germany and, uh, the Netherlands and all these places. Safe travels. And I will see you after the new year.